This is Contra Radio from Contra.Scot. Just weeks after Nicola Sturgeon's shock resignation as First Minister, her husband, the party's chief executive, Peter Murrell, has quit with immediate effect. Reports the SNP had lost around 30,000 members were at first denied by the head of communications, Murray Foote. After they were confirmed, he quit yesterday night, suggesting he'd been given inaccurate information by SNP headquarters. The controversy has plunged the party into renewed turmoil, despite attempts by the outgoing First Minister to steady the ship. One at a time. No, it is not. My party is having a democratic leadership election. Growing pains for any organisation can be painful, but they are important, and uh, the party's going through a process. The task is to retain the trust of the Scottish people that we have won consistently over, not just the eight years of my leadership, but consistently since 2007. Mr Murrell said he didn't want to become a distraction from the leadership race. But whoever wins the contest in just over a week's time has a gargantuan task to restore confidence in the party and in its driving mission to take Scotland out of the union. Hello listeners and welcome to the latest episode of the Enemy Within podcast. My name is Pete Romand and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host James Foley. And this week we have a very special guest. Contour editor David Jameson is with us. How are you doing, David? I'm doing good. Um, the last time we did this, I think, was when the Section 30 order got rebuffed and that feels like about 10 years ago, given everything that's happened. So let's set the scene. Just over a month ago, the SNP planned to hold a special conference on 19th March, organised by SNP Chief Executive Peter Murrell, where leader Nicola Sturgeon would win support for a de facto referendum general election strategy, consulting a membership that we were told was more than 100,000 strong. Now, just a little over a month later, not only has Nicola Sturgeon announced her resignation as First Minister, yesterday, SNP Chief Executive Peter Murrell resigned under pressure from the party's national executive. Shortly after, Liz Lloyd, Sturgeon's chief of staff, also announced her resignation. This all followed the shock departure last week of Murray Foote, the SNP's comms chief and former editor of the Scottish Daily Record, after it became apparent he had unknowingly spread misinformation about party membership figures at the behest of SNPHQ. He said, and I quote, I issued agreed responses to media inquiries regarding membership. It has subsequently become apparent there are serious issues with these responses. Consequently, I concluded this created a serious impediment to my role and I resigned my position with the SNP group at Holyrood. And this was all preceded by a story from Tom Gordon in the Sunday Herald, who reported that Police Scotland had escalated their investigations of potential financial fraud committed by the SNP, specifically the misallocation of large sums of money raised for an independence campaign which was subsequently improperly spent by the SNP. Peter Murrell personally loaned the SNP more than 100 grand to cover the shortfall, and this is also something being investigated by the police, according to Gordon. Structurally, the SNP is one of the most centrally organised, top-down apparatuses of any centre-left or liberal party in Europe. Now, arguably, the three most powerful individuals in Scottish politics have all resigned at once. It is hard to overstate how significant this could be for how our country is governed. 
Scottish politics isn't always interesting. But my goodness, to paraphrase a wise man, there are decades where nothing happens. And then there's a month where a decade happens. David, leaving aside what this means for the leadership contest for one moment, how did we get here? In a funny kind of way, we don't really know. We know a lot of what might turn out to be secondary and tertiary reasons why this is all going on. As you mentioned, there are ongoing questions about party finances. There were on- ongoing questions about the size of the party membership. That was connected to accusations made by two of the leadership candidates, Ash Reagan and Kate Forbes, that there was some dodgy dealings going on in Party HQ in relation to the leadership election. No specific evidence has been provided on that, but it did force out the membership figures, which show that in the last couple of years, 30,000 SNP members have left the party, and that since the party's peak in about 2019, uh, 50,000 members have left the, the SNP. But what did for Peter Murrell was simply the fact that he lied. I mean, actually, Murray Foote, he's not the party's comms chief, although, interestingly, that's the noises that are being put out all over the media, that he's the party comms chief. What's interesting, and it's something that Andy Whiteman, the former Green MSP, pointed out yesterday, is that he's actually paid by the taxpayer. He works for the SNP's MSP group for Holyrood, which might imply that his line manager is actually Nicola Sturgeon, not Peter Murrell, which may be an indication of why he's being labelled the party's comms chief. But in any case, when he left, he himself, having only weeks ago put about this figure of 103,000 members rather than 72,000 members, he euphemistically referred to being you know, given dodgy information by Party HQ. I think everyone thinks Party HQ is a euphemism for Peter Murrow. And certainly him quitting hours later, well, about 12 hours later, would strongly imply that he was the person issuing this false information. Basically, the, the, the party's entire remaining legacy leadership cadre have quit. Um, Murrell, of course, Foote, uh, Liz Lloyd, John Swinney, uh, and others besides, within a short period of Nicola Sturgeon leaving. There's well-worn metaphors being bandied around about rats fleeing ships and so on. But what is clear is that Sturgeon's entire Camarilla is leaving, fleeing in every direction. And Sturgeon's departure itself, let's not forget, was a shock. As every week goes by, it looks more and more like she went way before she wanted to and with no obvious strategy or plan. She jumped. That's very much what it looks like. Even her closest circle, I think, it's hard to say, but it... it it's possible that her close circle didn't know that she was going to go. I mean, Angus Robson certainly didn't. He was out of the country when she announced that she was leaving. So there's a very strange feeling, I think, created by two facts. One is we know some of the allegations against the party's top ranks. It feels like we don't have all the pieces of the puzzle yet, though. It's probably the case, if you ask most people on the streets who Peter Morrill is, they probably wouldn't be able to give you an answer. Except for amongst politicals, he's not actually that well known. So, James, just how significant is this? It's extraordinarily significant. The SNP has been one of the largest per capita parties in Europe, it is a very, very sizable organization. 
but it's also been one of the most centralised, I think, as you mentioned in your introduction. And essentially, it's this group of people who have been making the decisions. All these people that have resigned, Nicola Sturgeon, obviously, Peter Murrell, her husband, party CEO, John Swinney, Liz Lloyd, Murray Foote. I mean, this is essentially the whole inner circle of all the people that have essentially dictated the whole way that Scotland has been governed insofar as Holyrood has those types of powers for the last period. So it's an extraordinary moment in conceiving of power within the Scottish state. And with that, you're seeing all sorts of strange behaviour going on much broader than the SNP. One of the things I found particularly noticeable, completely outside of the party ranks, is the, you know, the commentaria, NGO Scotland, you know, academic Scotland, all those sort of institutions that circle what passes for the state in Scotland. There was a very sudden screeching U-turn performed, like almost like a sort of handbrake turn uh, performed by many of these organizations and individuals. Just about a week ago, Many people were calling it Trumpian nonsense to even be questioning anything to do with the membership figures. And frankly, it wasn't even a question that interested me or probably not David or anyone else either. Obviously, someone had some intelligence that someone was going on here and continued to push at it and push at it. And within the space of about half an hour, you saw some of these figures, your Jerry Hassan's, your uh, Leslie Riddick's and a whole range of other individuals suddenly changed towards demanding that Murrell must go. What it brought to mind to me was the great herd-like shift that happened in Scotland after 2014, when everyone started to realise that Scottish Labour as a party was basically finished and that you needed to move fast in some direction or get trampled by the stampede. It's actually just as interesting to think about how Civic Scotland has been shifting around. One of the things that strikes me is that the SNP's strategy in many respects over a long period of time was to prove good governance. They presented themselves as the best people to govern Scotland, the most trustworthy, the most efficient. And yet they really seem to have messed this up so fantastically. Why is it that just a month ago they were lying about their membership figures? I can't quite get my head around this. I would have assumed that Nicola Sturgeon leaving would have been as choreographed as many of her other events in politics. David, am I missing something when it comes to the membership figures? I think there's going to be two levels of, a, of analysis to this. I think there's quite a superficial level of analysis of what's gone wrong, which we're going to hear a lot from, which is going to be about hubris. And I think that there's truth in that. Uh, there has been hubris. There has been a centralization around the passing of Nicola Sturgeon. There has been a certain personalization of politics. There has been a culture of secrecy inside the organization for years and years. And you're starting to see now, yes, academics, journalists, people and NGOs say, you know, we need to clear, clear out the Augean stables uh, and all this kind of stuff. And you just think, where have you been? You knew. We all knew. We could all smell the stink. But I think that there's a deeper sociological reality beneath that which is that the SNP is a very peculiar type of political party. This is one of the reasons I always objected to people describing it as a social democratic party. It's not a social democratic party. Social democratic parties are a type of political formation which emerged 
at a certain point in the development of European capitalism, where you had a very large and healthy and robust civic sphere, the SNP is nothing like that. Because it's a political party which emerged on the historical scene at a time of enormous weakness for institutions like trade unions, uh, at a time of atomization and the kind of intelligentsia, the general emaciation of civic life. And I think perhaps in future we'll look back on the SNP. I mean the SNP that emerged out of the 2014 movement, what people sometimes refer to as the new SNP, as a political formation in some ways like Podemos in Spain, or even the Five Star Movement in Italy, perhaps the Five Star Movement's the most extreme example, of a kind of ephemeral political project which emerges out of popular discontent with traditional political establishments, but which is fundamentally quite unmoored from a permanent political base. I mean, one of the big problems of the SNP losing 50,000 members is, where is its money coming from? And we know they've got money problems because we know that Peter Murrell had to give over £100,000 to the party in a, a zero-interest loan, as I understand it, which doesn't sound dodgy at all, right? We know that that £600,000 is missing from the Independence Fund. And by the way, those sorts of crowdfunded efforts, I think, are the signature of this type of formation because you don't have a traditional institutional base. You don't have something like the trade unions giving you money. You also don't have the sorts of long-term business networks that traditional parties of the centre-right have time to build up. And my suspicion is, I mean, there were people saying that the SNP's hold on Scotland would be like the Labour Party's hold, or before that, the Tory Party's hold, or before that, the Liberal Party's hold. You know, Scotland has a history of these very long kind of political dynasties. But I don't know that a formation like the SNP can sustain something like that. Without that articulated, powerful civic society, which we've largely lost, the loss of that introduces a lot of volatility into politics, is what I'm saying. Because you don't have stable blocks in society, which are generational projects. So yeah, I mean, it looks like SNP hegemony, we may end up talking about it as something that lasted, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, and then suddenly and spectacularly exploded. I mean, it remains to be seen, but to me, that's the deeper sociological meaning behind the apparent frailty of the project. I think that's really fascinating, David. I think that's a really interesting analysis. The one difference with the SNP, though, that differentiates them from other parties in Europe is that they had an event like the independence referendum, because every other party has, over the years, atrophied members and the SNP suddenly had this democratic revival after 2014, where they had this flood of members into the organisation. The simple fact that Scotland is so polarised around independence, there is possibly going to still be a chunk of people who will have, on a more permanent basis, realigned behind the SNP. But certainly it's not going to be that large hegemonic project that can win every election. Rather, I think there might be a sort of more permanent realignment based on what's happening now. But I also think that this is a critical juncture. That is to say that how stable that base continues to be is to some extent going to depend on which leader is elected and the fallout from that. James, what do you think? Over the years, there are bigger scandals that the SNP has entirely got away with scot-free, precisely because 
they have this overriding narrative around independence and the polarisation connected to that, which means ultimately they aren't subjected often to the types of scrutiny that you would expect of many governing parties. So, for instance, like, you know, let's say that everything that is being alleged in Wings Over Scotland and all these different websites is true. Still, to me, it doesn't rank anywhere near the scandal that you would have had over care homes under COVID or the scandal of drug deaths or any of these other things that the SNP has basically got away with without scrutiny. So, partly, I do think that the current moment is still about the fact that Sturgeon was coming to the end of her rope when it came to the strategy of just promising a new referendum every year. I don't doubt that there are a number of circumstantial things which might well end up in accusations of criminality and so on. But ultimately, I think these are the kind of travails that you get if you've been a party in government for this amount of time. People start to believe they are above the law. They start to believe that truth doesn't matter. That's probably where the stuff around the membership numbers comes from, ultimately. The question you initially asked, Pete, was that, you know, it's an embarrassing thing for the SNP to have lost 40% of their members. And Murrell just doesn't want anyone knowing about this shit and thinks that, you know, he is omnipotent and therefore that something like this will never come out. This is the way that governments always start behaving when they've been in power for 15 years or whatever the SNP has been in power for now, you know. But they have been able to sort of rise above the laws of history, right? The laws that govern the behavior of electorates and political parties and so on, because the stability provided by the question of independence. If you think about Murray Foote, he is clearly someone that knows a great deal about what has been going on internally in the SNP. But he's also someone that has been described as a hack's hack. Remember, he's the guy that was behind the vow that he was in charge of the Daily Record at the time. He's pals with all the, you know, dirt diggers of the Scottish media and so on. And he's very, very pissed off at the party. And loads of other people are pissed off at the party. Murrell's protection is gone. And there's a lot of people who are coming out of the woodwork. So it's always inevitable to me that you're going to get more dirt that is going to come out, that's going to explain a little bit more about the proximate causes of what all this is about. But I don't think that should blind us to the deeper causes and the analysis of how it was that a party that has a pretty poor record in government ultimately uh, has been able to escape the laws of electoral gravity for so many years. It's really interesting that you mentioned that this usually happens to governments that have been in power for this long. And I think there's a very interesting parallel with the end of Scottish Labour. In succession, both Jack McConnell and Wendy Alexander were forced to resign. But when you compare what Wendy Alexander did, who was also accused of misappropriation of funds, but was basically just like subletting her flat or whatever, compared to this, when you're talking about half a million pounds worth of misappropriated funds, in other countries, when this sort of thing happens, they call it corruption. One of the things I think is interesting, though, then, is that Kate Forbes, in her response to the immediate crisis, issued a statement to party members and says that she commits to independent auditing of the party's membership numbers and finances to give confidence and assurance to members and at the same time manages to slip in more than a little neoliberal dog whistle saying that she commits to smaller, focused government to meet the needs of the people. If it's the case that an independent inquiry is launched, 
into the finances of the SNP, that could really create some problems for some of the outgoing old guard leadership. No, absolutely. And all, th- well, I was about to say all three of the potential candidates. I mean, there are two, really, Kate Forbes and Hamza Youssef. They are both holding a big bucket of shit now. I mean, I, I, if I was one of them, I wouldn't want to win this because you've now you're you, you're facing a lot of very difficult questions. Um, how far do you go in throwing people under the bus? Is it safe for you to go after your predecessor? On so many levels, the answer to that is no. At the moment, it looks like Sturgeon and Murrell, their friends are deserting them. They've reached that stage where they don't have any more money and cushy jobs to hand out apart from anything else. That's why all these media and NGO grifters are fleeing as well. They've got the old powers have nothing left to give. That said, we know from the history of politics, the former leader can be very dangerous to the new leader. It was interesting, Kate Forbes put out uh, a statement today saying, oh no, I accept the outcome of this election, no matter what it is. And there's people speculating about what that means. But partly there will be people, both in Hamza Youssef's camp and in Kate Forbes' camp, saying, this is absolute chaos. We need to detoxify this situation as much as possible. Because at the end of the day, people forget, you know, Kate Forbes is the number two in the government. She's the finance minister. Hamza Youssef is also a leading minister. This is their government that's getting trashed. Honestly, I think if the leadership election were to be halted now, if people were to say this has just become too discredited because the party CEO has been kicked out in the middle of it, right? I think that they might have to return to the country. I think there might have to be an election. That's how bad this is now gone. It's absolutely torrid. What is funny as well is Angus Robertson, you know, how much did he know about this situation? Because he's left his colleagues in a terrible state of affairs just by standing out of the way of what he must have seen coming down down the line. So what is possible at this point is there might be a, a sudden return of party unity to an extent because everyone's equally scared of the monster they've helped unleash. But I don't know. I mean, it, it could now just already be so poisoned by factionalism that the infighting maybe halts for a moment and then and then returns and, and returns with a vengeance. But yeah, anyone who inherits any power in this situation is faced with some very ugly choices and one wrong foot and they could destroy the government basically. Let's not forget as well, this is a coalition government. And the Greens are behaving very strangely around the whole thing, but as they have since the government began, because I saw yesterday Ross Greer (laughs) chose the worst possible moment to come out and say what a big pal of his Peter Murrell is and how Peter Murrell sort of swooped in to defend him when he was getting bullied at yes Scotland or whatever, right? So I, it's hard to predict what they're going to do. But at some point, the Scottish Greens' survival instinct might kick in and they're like, fuck this mess. We can't be associated with this anymore. Depends on what all comes out. So the whole government is in a fragile situation and that might now be reflected in the behaviour of the various factions and candidates. And what Ross Greer actually said, David, he said that he was underpaid and then he went to Peter Murrell and made a complaint about being underpaid. And then Peter Murrell said, oh, didums, that's terrible. I'm going to get you a pay rise. And thereafter, uh, secured a 25% pay rise for Ross Greer. I think Ross must have assumed that he was doing Peter Murrell a favor in relating this anecdote. But I don't think it really worked out that way. Partly because there were a lot of people who are 
of the view that Ross Greer shouldn't have been incurring a salary for his activism in the 2014 Yes campaign when many of the rest of us were doing it for free. I personally am in favour of a full-time staff of any campaign. Whether Ross Greer should or should not have been a member of the full-time staff is, of course, another question. But certainly, it got a bit of backlash on that basis. It's also the fact that essentially Ross has conceded there that while the Yes campaign was formerly an independent organisation, ultimately it was the SNP leadership of Morel and Co that were calling the shots on who got paid what within that supposedly independent campaign. So he basically, in the process of trying to defend Peter Murrell, ultimately did the dirty on him on a double level. And there have been one or two other people coming in to defend Murrell. Alison Thewlis did say that he had complimented her baking. Graham Campbell also came in with some anecdotes of his own. I don't think any of these endorsements, quite frankly, though, are fulfilling the role that Murrell would want to see. So thinking about the current leadership race, does this just benefit Kate Forbes? How is this going to play out? And honestly, if Hamza Youssef wins the election now, what happens then? Very good question. So Kate Forbes, as David related, has come out suddenly and changed her view and said that she trusts the process. There are various interpretations of what it is that she's doing there. I mean, obviously, it could be that she actually has suddenly discovered that she does trust the process, but very few people would probably trust uh, that interpretation of what's going on. One interpretation is that she believes that she is winning, and that was put forward by the STV journalist Peter Smith, uh, amongst others. And therefore, you know, the best thing for her to do is say, yeah, it's all brilliant because I'm the one that's going to end up in power. A second interpretation is the one that David has just related, which is essentially that the situation is so bad that in some ways you would be better to narrowly lose the contest in a sort of contested way and let the other candidate take hold of what is going to be an unholy mess. In fact, I think the term tremendous mess was used by the incoming acting CEO, Mike Russell, amongst others, to describe what's going on. So maybe if you're a canny operator, you'd rather be out of power for some amount of time. Let Hamza or whoever take responsibility for whatever needs to be done, do all the dirty work, clear out some of the stables and so on. And then you can take power when inevitably they get a kicking from all different sections. It's going to be a very, very difficult one because obviously if Hamza were to win, he will command no legitimacy. He'll be under attack from day one and he'll be expected to do the dirty on his own faction. But the dangers in that are huge. Want more like this? Subscribe to Contra Radio on our SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to our regular newsletter at contour.substack.com and find great articles and more at contour.scot. We really rely on listeners like you to help us grow. In return, you get access to exclusive content and events by joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash contourscot. You know, it was only a couple of years ago that all of you were laughing at America as 
one particular candidate in an election demanded that we stop the count. But now we have demands to stop the count here as well. David. Yeah. And, you know, people did, as James said earlier, draw a comparison. People were talking about when when Ash Reagan said that she was going to hold a press conference to demand answers on the party membership numbers, you know, a lot of people were saying, uh, what was it called? The, the Four Seasons Landscaping thing with Rudy Giuliani. This is in America. He said he was going to hold a press conference on to stop the steal at the Four Seasons. Everyone turned up at the Four Seasons Hotel and uh, later discovered he'd accidentally booked it at a landscaping business across from like some porno shop or something. And everyone was sort of comparing it to that. And yet, look, I never had or saw any evidence that there was any vote rigging going on and, and so on. But to be, to be honest, I think people who were saying that it was terribly Trumpian, as James has said, to, to, to challenge the legitimacy of SNPHQ now looks a bit short-sighted. It's hard to accuse anyone of being a conspiracy theorist anymore. What evidence could be supplied by the party HQ that it's doing everything by the book? Nothing believable. Nothing can be believed now. Once there's one proven conspiracy to pervert the truth, it's very difficult to, to demand that anyone take you at your word anymore. The SNP now has a serious problem. And its own party president and CEO is now admitting that there's a problem with the internal culture of the party. And we know what I wanted to make about the two candidates and, and how they are, the two main candidates, I should say, and how they're responding to the situation. One of the things that I think has been interesting since Sturgeon announced she was standing down is that we've basically seen a kind of split in the neoliberal project. You know, when it's come under pressure, it's kind of split and exposed its internal fissures. So you have someone like Forbes, who's almost archetypically a member of the kind of right wing faction of the broad neoliberal tradition, for whom a mixture of, sort of low key social conservatism, because she doesn't plan to actually implement a great deal of it, but linked with a sort of very pro-business, low-tax, small state. You have that on the one hand. And then on the other hand, you have Hamza Youssef, and he's just banging the inclusion drum and the, you know, the kind of soft center liberalism, left liberalism sort of package that we've all become so accustomed to. Now, this is the two wings, as it were, of, of the neoliberal tradition. And as we've seen elsewhere in politics, particularly in British politics, what tends to happen when there's a crisis in the political establishment under neoliberalism is each faction says, well, we weren't doing the political project quite fanatically enough in my direction. So that's what happened with Liz Truss. You know, the Tories' traditional bag of tricks weren't working. They weren't creating stability or growth in the British economy. They weren't creating stability in the wider society. So what was Liz Truss's answer? Just do it more. Just more Thatcherism. Just chuck a ton of neoliberal shock therapy at an already thoroughly liberalised, liberalised over decades, British economy. Just liberalise it more. Just do that. And what happens if you keep doing that, of course, is it blows up in your face. There's a kind of pale echo of that going on in Scotland right now. Hamza Yusuf seems to think that you create a hegemonic project just by repeating nostrums about equality and inclusion with nothing to back it up, just talk. And Kate Forbes seems convinced that when you have a political project falling apart and a very weak Scottish economy, as you do, all you need to do is just keep chucking the old nostrums about cutting back the state and so on in the situation. So we should bear in mind that in addition to the general disorganisation of the SNP, 
and the culture of secrecy and lies and the unstable relationship it now increasingly has, even with its own base, you also have a total vacuum of ideas here. There's no program emerging from the SNP. And not only that, but the SNP only talks about itself these days. It's been months since the SNP as a project seriously addressed the Scottish country, the country that actually exists. The SNP politicians only say two things now. One is, we're still on the road to independence. Independence is closer than ever. Peter Murrell in his statement when he was leaving said, uh, we're closer to independence than ever, right? No one believes that anymore. And the other thing that they're saying is, let's not forget how many elections we've won. Peter Murrell reorganized the SNP into a professional organization that's won so many elections. But that's something you only care about at this point if you're in the SNP and if you're a professional activist or a professional politician in the SNP. No one in Scotland gives a shit about that. Why would they? Out through all those umpteen elections, the actual position of the Scottish working class has gotten worse. Their buying power is worse today than it was 15 years ago. They are saying to the country, you can criticise us on many things, but we're good at winning elections. That just sounds terrible. And you could just retort, well, you've not won as many elections as Labour. They're talking about it like it's a policy success to have won elections. We got ourselves lots of jobs, didn't we? You're saying we're corrupt, but we've made loads of money. <laughs> I think that really displays just how out of ideas, how hollowed out as a project it is now. Yeah, I mean, it's like when someone accuses Elon Musk or Bill Gates of being immoral and corrupt, and they reply, well, how can he be? He's made a lot of money, you know? <laughs> it's, uh, it's got that level of logic to it. They have very little to show for all their electoral success, both in terms of the substantive aims of the party, which is independence, which is, for me, always the one thing that we should really have an investment in the SNP for, as the left, because beyond that, they're just another pale centre-left party that achieves very little in government. But on that front, they've got very little show for it either. I mean, just in terms of being a governing party of competence and delivery or whatever you want to describe it as, yes, they can point to some things that they have spent money on, but in terms of improving substantive outcomes, I can't think of many things that they can really point to they are supposed to be in a coalition with the Greens, yet their environmental record is pretty awful. The drug deaths, I think, by any standards, are a massive a moral crisis for Scottish society as a whole. And who is responsible? Ultimately, I don't think that's one that you can entirely lay at the doors of Westminster policy. Indeed, I think it's fundamentally immoral to do that. And most especially, Nicola Sturgeon said, judge me on the attainment gap. What's happened on that front? Well, I mean, things are beginning to go into reverse. Whether or not the attainment gap should be the measure that we use in terms of addressing inequality in society is kind of besides the point. It's the one Nicola Sturgeon asked us to judge her on. And I think it only goes so far to say, well, we didn't solve that because we had all the crises. That, to me, suggests the root cause of a lot of the basic problems of the SNP. They're praying for a return to stable capitalist growth of the type that we saw in the 1990s. And it doesn't come along. And that's their excuse for not achieving anything. But it isn't coming back. So if it's not coming back, you've got to rethink your fundamental politics 
and economics, and they have not done so since 2008 in any way whatsoever. They've just doubled down, indeed, on some of the most radical neoliberal elements of their prospectus for independence. So, I mean, even getting beyond their particular failures in government, which are manifold, the accusations of malpractice and possibly criminality and all these other things, just at a basic philosophical level, there's so much about it that doesn't add up and they need to completely reinvent what it is that they stand for to get anywhere near independence. I mean, I totally agree, James. They do have to reinvent themselves as a party completely, but it just doesn't seem like that's going to happen. I mean, it's interesting to think about the parallel after the 1979 referendum. It was in the aftermath of that that you had the 79 group coming together trying to forensically go over why they lost the referendum and ultimately the beginnings of a strategy that informs the party up until more or less now was developed. And sections of the SNP who went on to lead the SNP decided that they had to position the SNP as a social democratic alternative to the left of the Labour Party in Scotland in order to undermine working class support for the Labour Party and to win the Scottish working class over to independence. And there were some serious intellectual debates that took place between key party members, intellectuals within the nationalist movement that weren't necessarily in the SNP. But there was a real process of reinventing the party that took place. In some respects, 2014 was just the death of the SNP because it was the realisation of that strategy. In the months and years after 2014, that is when you have the landslide in the West Coast from decades of Labour Party rule over to the SNP. And suddenly, the strategy that they had more or less been working on for decades was realised and they had no ideas left. There's going to be a a long-lasting personnel problem, as you've kind of pointed out there, Pete. I mean, an, an insurgent generation is not like a generation of power. Alex Salmond had to fight his way in from the wilderness to create the SNP that eventually issued in the 2014 referendum. And, I mean, there's, there's two factors here. One is most of the crop of modern SNP politicians were brought into power by a wave by a, by a social movement that was unusual in, in the history of Scotland, this historic social movement that swept them into power through le very little you know, ingenuity or hard work of their own. Right, They were brought in by the aftermath of that social movement. They don't know what it is really to fight for power, to fight for position. They don't know what it is to conduct internal debates because the SNP has basically not had them for years and every major decision was made by a tiny clique at the top of the party. So they're not used to debating politics. They're not used to debating policy or strategy, let alone a deeper philosophical worldview or something that's completely alien to these people. But there's another factor, which again is just this point about living with a very emaciated civic sphere. These people, by and large, they weren't recruited from trade unions or social movements. They didn't fight their way up through other organizations. They didn't become leaders on their own terms. They haven't got any training of being organizers of a wider kind of civic front or anything like that. That just reflects itself in the poor quality of the politicians we now have. I mean, one of the things that's saved the bacon of the Westminster group, who I presume will be under real pressure at the next general election, 
it's kind of all this stuff saved their bacon a, a bit because they're making fools of themselves down there. This was completely missed, but a few days ago, uh, Mary Black, who's now the deputy leader of the SNP Westminster Group, was asked her opinion on a very basic piece of Tory policy, and she had to just hold up her hands. This is in a live interview and say she didn't know. She didn't know what she thought about it. So the, the low quality of political actors in the party now is becoming evident everywhere. And, you know, there are still a few holdouts, SNP politicians on Twitter saying, we'll prove you all wrong. We'll prove you all wrong. We've survived worse than this and, and so on and so forth. On one level, you love to see it because it's, it's refreshing that people stand by their leaders as they're felled, you know, and, and not just running away and on to the next bit. But you do think you guys don't realise you're not the party that, that struggled to power, that overturned Labour hegemony. That's not the party who the SNP are anymore. Those people are gone. And what you have instead is a group of relative newbies who've only known good times. They don't know what it is to survive the hard times. So that's another factor at play here. Can these personnel actually hold up under the pressure of circumstances? Well, I was going to say, like, you know, isn't it true that hard times make strong men or whatever it is that conservatives say? <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I I know there's an extent of truth in it, you know. I mean, when you have a situation where these people have essentially walked into these sinecures, they have no scrutiny on them because of the surrounding ideological context, and they're not expected to think because essentially the SNP has centralised thinking into, at best, about six or seven people, and everyone else is just expected to face the front and get on with their typing and to vote the right way, essentially, when it comes to any parliamentary vote. Under those circumstances, what are you going to expect of people? These people have been trapped in conditions of perpetual intellectual and political adolescence. And the only way that the SNP is going to be able to recover is obviously, you know, it's now inevitable that daddy's gone, mummy's gone, you know, the whole adult layer, as it were, of the SNP has disappeared. And these people are going to have to grow up to the level of adults. The requirements for that will have, will be probably opposition. I mean, I think the SNP and the case for independence isn't going to recover until these people have to face uh, some amount of time in opposition. You could also see, of course, the splintering of the pro-independence vote into different parties. It's likely, certainly if Kate Forbes takes over, for instance, that some of the younger layers and all that who did enter many of these cushy jobs under Sturgeon may well migrate into the Green Party. And you might see Alaba getting reinvigorated. Who knows? You may even see the socialist left start to get its act together or whatever. But we're always going to be dependent one way or the other on the SNP if there is to be anything like a movement for independence. I think the strategic question for the socialist left, to me, is as follows. Essentially, there is no way that there is any immediate prospect of independence, and nobody should be pretending that there is. If we're now talking about something that could be lasting a process of decades, as I think seems likely, before these people have anything like the maturity to take on the current circumstances with intellectual seriousness, if that is indeed the case, should independence even form part of the strategy of the Scottish left in anything other than an intellectual sense? Certainly what I'm not up for doing in the future is pretending like all of Scotland needs to be permanently split 
into a block of people that are indie and a block of people that aren't when it comes to the strategic questions around the cost of living crisis and similar types of crises that are affecting society. We actually have to deal in the here and now when it comes to these things because they're very urgent and very real crises. And that should inform the way that we approach politics. Conversely, I'm also of the view that we cannot return to an old-fashioned laborist idea of one British movement. The consequence of that, maybe against the wishes of those who would argue for it, is precisely to let the Scottish establishment off the hook, including the nationalist Scottish establishment. We need a politics that deals with the fact that Scotland is effectively politically separate from the rest of the UK in terms of consciousness and is reflective of that, but at the same time is not making questions around independence a precondition of entry. I think that is how we will have to respond. But others may have a different view on that dynamic. But certainly what I'm not willing to do is sit for 30 years waiting for independence to become a serious thing again and just ignoring all the massive crises of capitalism that are taking place while we... uh, well, we see if Hamza Yousaf and his cohort get their act together. Free by 2053 isn't the most compelling slogan, is it? I mean, I think it's funny because I remember back in the referendum days, right? Do you remember people would like do those nice little stories where they would imagine Scotland 10 or 20 years later and it was this lovely egalitarian paradise full of democracy and so on? I'd love to see some rewritten stories of the day we finally get independence in 2053, the Scottish swamp, the last remnants of uh, the land is disappearing into the water. Who knows? James, I'm glad that you brought it onto the question of strategy for the left, because as much as it doesn't feel like it right now, I think in the medium term, this does present some opportunities for the left. Specifically, if it's the case that we think that the SNP is going to decline, from this moment on, that it's not going to regain or rebuild the level of hegemony that it had accomplished over the last few years. This, to me, feels like a situation in which the Scottish left could actually contest at an electoral level again, potentially. And what that would mean is that the left needs to start thinking about how to prepare candidates that could actually have a chance of getting back into Hollywood In 2026, we're talking about an election that will take place in three years and two months. A couple of points about what comes next. I mean, let's let's not write off the SNP entirely right now. I do think it's too early to do that just because they still have this kind of hulking political presence. We're in uncharted territory. I mean, when I talk about this model of politics and how it works in Europe, there's still much about it that we don't know. We've never been in this situation before in Scottish politics where you have a kind of constitutionally based, at least in theory, at least that's what's written on the tin, schism in society. How long does that take to break down? Could be quick, or it could take years for that to completely dissipate. Remember, the people who are voting for the SNP, they have a very strong motivation still to resent the old kind of unionist establishment in Scotland. And we don't know how long that resentment will hold at least some of its power. But let's assume that the SNP are are going to dwindle from here on in, that we've passed what used to be called peak NAT. I think it was in 2016 that the Tories introduced the phrase peak NAT. Let's assume that we have passed it. 
I couldn't imagine the return of Labour Scotland. Um, I think that's dead, right? So I think what we're going to end up with is a series of political tribes which are all hollowed out cartel parties without meaningful relationships to the society beneath them, which is the general picture of politics across the continent and the world, but it will have a new kind of shape in Scotland, a sort of graveyard politics where there are all these shell parties with better enmity between each other, but aren't really in any serious conversation with the society that they're supposed to represent. I can imagine that's the situation we're heading into. And on the one hand, that does represent an opportunity for a challenge from the radical left. But I don't think that starts with a conversation about parliament, because to have leaders who have the authority to break their way into institutions like parliament, I think you first need to represent the antagonisms which exist in Scottish society. And that actually begins perhaps with just finding a way to challenge that anger that does exist in Scottish society, but which isn't really being articulated at the moment. I mean, we've, we've seen in the last year, the average buying power of the average worker has declined by something, I believe, like 5 or 6%. So it's a huge hit to the living standards of the majority. Has that manifested itself on the streets? No, I don't really think so. There are, of course, groups of workers fighting, some very valiantly, you know, from the RMT to the posties to teachers and, and so on including groups of workers who have moved into action for the first time and don't have particularly strong organisations. So that's all for the good. But let's be honest, the trade union movement is still in much the same position it's been for decades. It represents relatively small groups of workers who are able to move into action quite fast when their interests are threatened, but that tends not to kind of bleed out into a more generalised resistance in wider layers of the working class. That's just the structural reality of the trade union movement we, we currently have. What I would like to see from the left now is an attempt to construct an antagonism between broader layers in Scottish society and power as it is actually situated here. One of the things that I resent about the Labourite strategy that James refers to is that it actually shares with the SNP this dislocation of, of discontent down to London. People think that's characteristically the SNP. It's not. I remember Scottish Labour in power. It was a different formulation of that kind of devolution politics of, look, ultimately the buck doesn't stop with us. A different formulation, but it's essentially the same post-devolution politics. Ultimately, the view of Labourites is this. Get the Labour Party into power at Westminster. They'll open the public spending pipeline up to Scotland and we'll go back to the kind of patronage politics that the Labour Party has represented for a generation or more. Not only is it not a sufficiently radical political project or whatever, it doesn't solve the fundamental problem of Scottish politics. It does the same old thing of saying, ultimately, politics is a London game. It's about the central British state. And that's a profoundly demobilising message for people who live in Scotland. We need to break this logic of the devolution era and move into a situation where, as well as a domestic political class, we have domestic resources of resistance and insurgency representing the interests of the mass of the population. I think that is the first job. I don't. I mean, I don't want to be kind of stagist about it. Perhaps it would be good to have a serious challenge from the radical left at the next elections almost regardless of developments that have matured in the meantime. But I think the central question is, 
can the radical left help to construct that new political situation where forces situated in Scotland view the Scottish government as the central antagonist in politics and stop viewing it, as so often happens in Scotland, as a kind of friend you have to be wary of? The left itself has become very flabby and very hollowed out, and I hope I haven't mixed my metaphors too egregiously in saying that, by the circumstances that we've had, and it's become very easy for the left essentially just to orbit the Scottish government, and even those that are in the Labourist left, as David said, can effectively just play the sort of lazy game of anti-Toryism and win a lot of sinecures in and around Scottish society from what passes for the state by playing up narratives which essentially empower much of the Scottish governing class, even while making a pretense of being a critic of various parts of government policy. So I think what it's going to take is for the left itself to go through some of the process that we'd said the SNP needs to go through, which is recovering its sense of being in opposition and recovering its sense of combativity. And unless we build that sort of character into the left, I don't think we're going to get anywhere. A final kind of point is I think we do need to start thinking about the divisions in Scottish society in class terms rather than in pro-independence versus anti-independence terms. That can seem like it's something of a flabby conclusion that will just lead to a return towards traditional laborism and so on, which is precisely the type of thing that I'm trying to avoid in all of this. We have the left and the SNP and the laborists and various other groups in Scottish society who, because of a lack of accountability, have been trapped in a stage of perpetual political adolescence. And the debates that we've been having are symptomatic of it. It's time we on the left embraced a degree of adult responsibility. And part of that, I think, is about accepting the fact that we're a minority in society, but it is part of our democratic duty to express what it is that we stand for autonomously from these dominant blocks in Scottish society. Well, there you have it, listeners. The political situation in Scotland is fluid. In a week's time, we will have the announcement of a new First Minister, and you can get all your analysis of developments as they occur over at Contra.Scot. So we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but we do know that for today at least, for Peter Murrell, the magpies have come home to roost. <laughs> very nice, very nice. Uh, uh, I knew there'd be a magpie reference at some point. Murrell, is there anybody in the room with you? Because you keep looking off to the left. Off to the left? Yeah, is there anybody in the room with you just now? No. A conspiracy you're uh, suggesting. There, there is a magpie um, outside here, but apart from that, there's a magpie. Well, in fact, there's two. Yeah.